empowering you with strategies to succeed. This is Jen Tringale, and you're listening to the Jen Tringale Podcast. everybody. Welcome to the podcast this month. I am so glad that you're joining us once again. My guest today is a multi-Grammy winning artist. She is a singer and a songwriter, gospel singer, Ashley Cleveland. Ashley, it is such a delight to have you here today. Thanks. It's great to be here. So I, just about a month ago, happened upon a really cool night that happens here in Nashville at the Bluebird Cafe. Yes. It was songwriters in the round, and you were one of the artists that night. Yeah. And my mom was in town visiting, and I said, Mom, I think this is going to be a good one if we can just get tickets. And so we got in there. It was such a great night. And we just got really caught up in the songs you brought that night, the stories that you shared, and that night was when we got a hold of your book. And so we walked out with a copy of Little Black Sheep. Now, Ashley, what year did that come out? That was released in 2013, in the fall of 2013. And you wrote it. It's really a memoir of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible story. Everybody's going to want to get a copy of that, but there's so much that's wrapped up in the book, in your story, and you can hear it all throughout your music. I'm just so excited to get into (laughs) any pockets and pieces of this that we can today. That sounds great. Um, We have to say, too, we're getting to have this conversation in a place that's really sort of a Nashville institution. It is. Here at Cheekwood Mansion Botanical Gardens. I know I'm a member. You mentioned you're a member here. Yes. And I just thought, what a really fitting place, because in a lot of ways, you really are a Nashville institution. That may be a stretch. Um, I could see it. But I am a Tennessee girl. Yes, you are. I am born and partly raised in Tennessee. I grew up also partly in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. But in my heart, in my soul, I'm a Tennessee girl. You know, sitting in a room where you're looking out at Tennessee topography, which is beautiful and it always feels nourishing to me. Yeah, I totally believe that. Well, you are such a wonderful part of the music industry here, the community of artists that's here. So it's a great place to be. And I want to add this in and then we'll just set you loose. But recently, a documentary was made about your life. And it's getting ready to be a part of the Nashville Film Festival. Is it in October, did you say? It is October, which is new for them. They previously have done the festival in the spring. But this October, it'll be the 50th anniversary of the Nashville Film Festival, which I didn't even know. So they're going to make kind of a little thing out of it. And it will be... I think it runs in the first two weeks of October, but if people went to Nashville Film Fest or Googled it, I'm sure they have the dates up, if not the films. I know you have a wide listenership, so if anybody was thinking they might want to come to Nashville, October would be good. That would be the time. That's right. (laughs) The documentary is called Who's the Girl? That's right. I just thought that was a great title, and I thought it's probably a line that has through your life resonated in people's minds, whether they've heard you speak or they're sitting at a concert of yours, even in a table of artists 
when you stand up to let what's in you come out of you, everybody kind of stops if they don't already know and go, who is this? (laughs) Is that something that you have grown an awareness of through the years? Or have you always kind of known, I kind of run my own path? Well, you know, it's funny. Who's the girl really emerged from there? It was a very iconic record label executive named Amit Erdogan. And he was one of the founders of Atlantic Records and really responsible for some of the greatest artists that ever lived. Ray Ray Charles, Miles Davis, Aretha Mm -hmm. Franklin. I think he signed Led Zeppelin. I know he signed Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just had incredible perception about artistry and about music. So I had tried, my management had tried to get me a record deal. I came here in 1984 and had kind of worked my way up to where I was singing background on a lot of records and I was writing for a publishing company. But all the record labels said no, pretty much. And for one reason and another. And then I had done a duet with a guy named John Hyatt who I'd been touring with. And it was for somebody else's project that we had nothing to do with, but the project was an instrumental project, and this was just one song that needed vocals. And so we really were just hired hands on it. But it landed on Ahmed Erdogan's desk, and he sent word back to the producer saying, I'm not interested in this project, but who's the girl? Wow. You know, so that's one answer to your question. And the, and yeah. the larger answer is, I think, you know, because I was a Southerner who was uprooted and taken to Northern California, which was pretty much light years from any frame of reference I had yeah. as a child, I really can't remember a time in my life when I wasn't an outsider. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I didn't realize the extent to which that would follow in my career, that I would remain sort of an outsider. Mm -hmm. And even today, you know, I'm in this strange spot where for years I have operated in the mainstream of music and also in the Christian music industry, but clearly belonged to neither one of them. Right. And that's as it should be. You know, if you're mm-hmm. talking about the mainstream, there's probably too much message mm-hmm. in what I write or, or what I choose to sing. Mm-hmm. And if you're talking about the Christians, I'm just kind of, I, I don't know if there's too much edge in my music. I doubt that. But I do think there's too much edge in me personally. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, it's one of those things where I kind of go everywhere and belong nowhere. And that has been an ongoing theme. And it's been part of the problem with my career where some of your listeners are probably saying, no, who is this person? Yeah. (laughs) And that's okay. Yeah. I wonder about that, though, too. And I don't know if you wonder about it or have thought about the fact that it's probably a really strong component of the purpose and the call of God for your life. Because I can remember, I had family in the music industry growing up, different parts of the industry. And so we were just always a little more tuned in to music than probably most families. But growing up in a Christian household, 
I remember when Bus Name Desire came out. Oh. And I can remember the Christian music industry being a buzz going secular. Sec, the secular industry is really liking this album. This is a big deal. Like people who aren't Christians mm. are really getting into this. And wow, isn't that, that amazing? And that was still very groundbreaking back then. I mean, today we can flip on TV and see, you know, a Lauren Daigle on the Ellen show. Right. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, we see Hillsong United on Good Morning America, and we go, right. oh, well, that's cool. But, you know, 20, 30 years ago, when that was getting attention, no, it was both, not that it way. was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you really have kind of had this strain of being a path carver and a type of trailblazer. And what you've done, have you felt that? No, not really? at all. I think I've just been focused on survival. Right. You know. <laughs> well, and that it is what it takes. I mean, when you're going down roads that the masses aren't going down, you know, it takes a lot of effort. Well, I joke with my husband all the time. I mean, we joke back and forth. It's like, wow, the great thing about you is there's nobody like you. The terrible thing about you is there's, there's nobody, nobody like, like you. you. Yeah. Right. And yeah. because people do gather strength from being part of a larger entity. That's just reality. Yeah. And so for women and men who choose to go down a different path, it can be incredibly lonely, but it can also be liberating. And so True. I've experienced both of those things, you True. know. But the liberation really came because I wasn't commercially viable enough for anyone to insist that I did things a certain way. But mm-hmm. it freed me up to do the things I wanted to do. True. And all of us... Sooner or later, we have to make choices. And, you know, and in the music industry, a lot of people have to make choices about, am I going to follow my own artistic sensibility? Or am I going to do something that my label or, you know, my team of people that I'm accountable to is asking me to do because it will make me more commercially viable. Mm -hmm. But it's not really who I am. Right. And honestly... That question kind of got taken away from me because it's sort of the industry moved on. And Hmm. so I was never really confronted with it. So I just did what I wanted to do. Right. And I was fortunate in that I had a strong enough fan base Mm -hmm. to just keep going. Yeah. And really, that is the story of my life. And it's the story of Little Black Sheep. It's the story of Who's the Girl? It's so much of what I write about is you have this picture in your life, you have this dream, and you have an awareness of how you're gifted. Mm -hmm. To some extent, I I would argue now, being 62, that most of us have no idea what all our gifts are. And so there's a discovery path there, too. But you do, you come in with a certain wisdom about, okay, this is my toolkit. Right. This is what I can do. and. You have dreams about what that's going to look like. And for me, it was all about, I'm destined to be a rock star, Mm -hmm. period. And it's inevitable. Right. And it was so not inevitable. (laughs) (laughs) But what I say in the movie, what I say really in the book, what I say just in general is, 
I did not get what I wanted. And I will also footnote that with nor should I have. I think I'm also a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. Mm-hmm. Been sober 21 years. And mm. looking at that now, I just think if I'd gotten what I wanted, mm-hmm. first of all, I would have been a monster. Secondly, it would have killed me. Wow. Or maybe first it would have killed me and I would have spared everybody my <laughs> monsterness. But, um, wow. you know, what I did get, though, was a lie. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm coming up on my 28th marriage anniversary. I have children. My oldest child I had before I got married alone, and she has really suffered mm. being in that position and mm-hmm. is also an addict, unrecovered. Mm. And so it has been so thrilling to me to marry my husband and to have two children where I really had a chance as I came into my own recovery to get closer to being the kind of mother that I wanted to be. And, you know, I think everybody realizes by now there's no way to do it all. Right. Or there's no way to do it all well. Well, yeah. That's so true. And so what I lost in my career... I gained in my home, mm-hmm. and I would do the same thing again, I think. You would choose it? Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, I would. I didn't choose it. It was, it was happening. Right, I'm right. Far too self-absorbed for that. But uh, <laughs> that's where faith becomes so crucial. Mm-hmm. I had this experience and this encounter of this God that I could hardly believe was possible because he lifted me out of this sewer of my own making Mm -hmm. and taught me how to live. And I had such a profound sense of his love for me. And so having that really helped in some of the more crushing disappointments. And it's certainly given me hope for my oldest child. Mm -hmm. That and a whole lot of AA and Al-Anon. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) goes a long way. Yes. I had come across a statement you made that I just thought was so beautiful. And you said, God rescued me out of the deepest possible hole in spite of me. Yes. And then you said, I could not get over his kindness and tenderness, and I still can't. That's pretty genuine but provoking in a way Hmm. you know before we started recording we were talking about people that have walked with God or been in relationship with God for a long time and the power of keeping the mystery and not going I have figured out who God is I have figured (laughs) out who his son is I figured out who the Holy Spirit is I figured out me I mean, what an incredibly stupid, you know, summary to come to. Yeah. How, to what a small moved. God. Yes, yes. Very, very small. Yes. But to still say, I'm still overwhelmed at his lovingness and his kindness to yes. me. Oh. You still feel the, that today? Oh, my goodness. The older I get, the bigger he gets and the more unknowable. And, you know, and... there's a certain amount of hubris that accompanies the first half of our lives Mm. that, you know, 
once you've had your heart broken a few times, once you've been around the block a few times, it mercifully gets, hopefully, gets knocked out of you. And you start to realize your position in this universe. Yeah, yeah. And you come to that thing that... G.K. Chesterton used to talk about, you know, I'm shocked he has anything to do with us at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> because of who we are, not right. because of who he is. Right. And Christ is all. Yeah. That's all. That's yeah. all I know. Jesus Christ is all I know. And his transforming love. Yeah. Where in your journey, so you have this ambition as an artist. Mm from early on, where in your journey did you kind of go, I think I'm actually here on planet Earth to communicate something of who God is and this gift that he's given me. I think I'm supposed to do something with this to communicate something of value to people. Was that a moment? Was it a knowing Mm -hmm. No, no. I never wanted to be a Christian artist. Yeah. Even though I left the mainstream and went into the Christian world, and I always recoiled when somebody would say, thank you for your ministry. I thought, I'm not a minister, I'm a musician. (laughs) You know, I would just be really, you know... Because that can get be all over me. So confining. well, it is. So no, you know what happened for me? It was none of it was calculated. None of it was a moment, and I never felt like the Lord called me to be an ambassador for Him right. or to speak for Him. I I still don't. I'm still not entirely sure. I feel that way. Yeah. I just want to know Him. Yeah. That and you know, as right. a writer, the way that I work out. My interior life is uh-huh. through writing. Yeah. And so what happened for me is once I got into recovery, once I was in a stable relationship with my husband, once I was, you know, it had sort of come into a life, mm-hmm. what captivated my imagination more than anything else just to write about was trying to understand Mm. this God that had shown me this kindness. So really, that's all I was trying to do. Mm -hmm. And of course, my secular record label said, well, if that's what you want to write about, you just really don't need to do that here. Yeah. And so wow. initially I was on, I went to RCA and Reunion, so I was on a Christian label mm-hmm. and a secular label simultaneously. And that went through a couple of revolutions. And then eventually mm-hmm. I was just on a Christian label. And then eventually, you know, after that, we had our own record label and I would license records to various entities. But somewhere in the mix... I became identified as a Christian artist, but that was never my intention. I was just chasing what I wanted to chase just for my own understanding. And I don't think I was chasing God. I was chasing understanding. Understanding. And as the scripture came alive to me, there were things I, you know, I wanted to work out writing about that. So Mm -hmm. it was, it was so organic and, 
and unintentional and and probably I resisted it all mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. but now here I am and yeah there it is <laughs> for you what is the most rewarding piece of being an artist is it writing a fleshing out an experience or a reality that's true to you is it actually getting to perform that is it when somebody comes up to you and says what you wrote made a difference what's kind of the the high mark or all is of it the all above the, yeah. I, you know this very hard to separate all that on a very personal level anytime I know that I've done good work, Mm -hmm. that I've written something that I feel proud of and I want to show to other people, Mm -hmm. whether it's a lyric or prose, that means the world to me. So that's on a very sort of deeply personal level, you know, Mm -hmm. and that sustains me even if nobody else ever saw it. But because... You know, I have an equal ambition to connect mm-hmm. with people, and I'm introverted, so I really love to connect with people through the arts. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so when somebody tells me something meant something to them, I just think, hmm, that's equally meaningful to me mm-hmm. on a, in, in a larger way. But it also, you know, I think if you're looking at songwriting in general the great songs and certainly the great songs of my generation they took on a life of their own for the listeners yeah they kind of jumped the borders so whatever the writer meant whatever the writer was thinking about Mm -hmm. may or may not be clear to the listener right but the listener somehow makes their own emotional Mm-hmm. connection and they step into a sense of ownership it's so true of the song to where it becomes part of their life and right. they want it at their wedding or they want it when their baby's born and right. they you know it's right. so to me anytime one of my songs becomes meaningful to somebody else regardless of whether they got my original intention with it yeah that's incredible yeah and performing is I love to perform I've had to come to terms with aging in my voice so so the way I sang 10 years ago I can't sing that way I'm really even five years ago it's uh, you know I just mm-hmm. can't do that physically anymore so mm-hmm. any kind of any performance where I feel like okay I I got close to what I wanted to do there yeah. is a great thing yeah just great yeah now when you wrote this book Yes. And I know you're continuing to do some writing. Yes. How different of an experience was that for you versus songwriting? And was it something that came easy to sit down and go, okay, I'm going to go reach <laughs> no. way back. I mean, the little bit of writing I've done, I know it's like eventually I just have to ball and chain myself right. to a table and go, there's no way out. Right. You're stuck. Deadlines are looming. It's now or never. Right. Is it the same for you, even though you're already a songwriter? Yes, it's, it is the same. And yeah. no, being a songwriter doesn't help at all. And really? I, there's a there's a wonderful woman here in town, uh, the Reverend Becca Stevens, who's a priest, but also a great writer. Yeah. She says, 
if you want me to get my house clean, mm-hmm. tell me I have a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so true. It's so true. Yes. And I did not want to write a book. I'm a reader and I've, you know, I'm snobby about it. I kind yeah. of feel like I'm a discerning reader. So uh-huh. I just thought nobody needs a book from me. And yeah. this, another woman who had heard some essays I'd written and heard pieces of my life story was literally goading me to do it. And my response to her was to become hostile and just, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why you are, you know, there's nothing in this for you. Why are you pressing me to do this? But and for two years, she every time I saw her, she'd say, how's that book coming? And I would just go wow. into fits. Yeah. But eventually I surrendered. Once I surrendered to it, it did not make it easier, but it did make it doable. And, yeah. I, and I found a way to get my butt in the chair, which uh-huh. is really the beginning and the end of it. So you true. You know, once you're in the chair, yeah. you can get something done. Yeah. And I bring this woman, Olga Davis, up because... She taught me something about the nature, and I think particularly among women, that is so crucial in that she saw something in me that I did not see myself, mm. and she literally called it out. Wow. And and got nothing but contempt for her effort mm-hmm. initially. Mm-hmm. Although now I can't thank her enough because now I, you know, I'm working on another book, and I, wow. and it opened up this whole new world to me. You know, I still write very tight prose because I've written songs for so long where every word counts. So Mm -hmm. I still am of that mindset. But prose does, you know, it opens up a whole possibility to you to elaborate Mm -hmm. in a way that songwriting just does not have the room for. You know, so I, for me, the beauty of all that was here was this woman who took the time to see something in me and then pressed me to mm-hmm. see it myself mm-hmm. and and gave me that gift just to do it. Wow. There was there was nothing in it for her yeah. other than the pleasure of her seeing me do it. Right. You know? Right. And that's powerful. It is. And I think how can I do that for other People and, like I say, particularly young women, mm-hmm. and pay it forward mm-hmm. in some crucial way. I just think that's yeah. part of our connectedness. That's so true. Is to see things in one another. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we were talking about so many of the things that happen for us. You know, we go into it thinking, this is not even worth doing. Right. This is a waste of time. And then it opens, and then it's like it keeps opening, and it keeps becoming. And and all of a sudden you think, this may be my life for a while. Right. It's so true. I was just talking with a a group of kind of 20-something girls, you know, and, and I asked them, I said, what? They were getting ready to graduate from college, and I said, even though you don't have this all figured out, what is it that you hope you get to do? What is the thing that you say, I hope my life at least looks something like this or has this piece in it? And so they, you know, were kind of sharing. They all had different ideas and uh, across the board. It was incredible, the vision that was present in just a handful of young women. You know, mm. there wasn't a yeah. small dream among them. No. 
and nor um, should there be right right it, it was so good and eventually they all kind of went around the room and basically what they were saying was I know it's in there I'm just waiting for someone to give me a license that says go for it yeah. you know yeah. and that's what you're really talking about I mean here you are an accomplished and awarded songwriter and this woman comes along uh, sort of uninvited, it uninvited, sounds like. totally. And says, I see this in you. And even though you're not asking for a license for it, I'm going to start calling this out of you. And it sounds like that calling was a process. Completely. Yeah. Uh, and the process was just me resisting it, saying, I don't want to do this. It won't be any good. I, you know, yeah. I don't have time. Right. I don't blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I don't want to roll out all my, you know, I don't want to tell this story. It's painful. Yeah. But it was also redemptive and it was also beautiful. And it also yeah. helped me to see, you know, relationships that have been so painful in the living when I stepped back and wrote about them. I had so much compassion. Wow! Like for my father and yeah. um, and my mother too. You yeah. know, it, everybody was doing the best they knew how to do, and that seems so simplistic to say. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, sometimes you have to be out of it and stepped back. True. To have any kind of perspective. That's so true. That's so true. So. There's so many things about your story that I could ask you about, and I know we're kind of running short on time. I loved how you say, I thought it was so descriptive when you talked about coming from a alcoholic dynasty yes. in your family. All my family members, well, it was, I, I stole this from a friend. She used to say, all my family members are alcoholics, except my brother, who's a Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That sums yeah. it up right there. Yeah. Yes. And so you then, I'm assuming, were maybe the first in your generational line to turn the table on that? Well, I went to, I was hospitalized in 1984, kind of an early hospital version of a treatment facility. Yeah. And began the recovery journey then and and amazingly my mother went to the same hospital right after I left wow and she so she's and I had a very long she had a short relapse I had a long one so Mm -hmm. she's been sober longer than me she's in her in 30 years or something but what's so beautiful to me is that we go to AA meetings together and um so, you know, I, I really feel like we started that journey kind of together. Sure. And then, uh, and my father, he never recovered. He stopped drinking, but, you know, he died with no recovery. You know, mm. you can stop drinking, but that doesn't begin to right. deal with it. Right. And um, yeah. that's just... That's just taking away the one thing <laughs> that that might have you know that made you feel a little better for a minute. But sure. um, but if you don't do the work of recovery, yeah, it's just a big empty hole. That's so true. It's so true. So, I think that's so interesting. My family on my mom's side 
you could say, had its own dynasty, probably, I think, four generations back, mm. just all lifelong alcoholics. Right. But when it got to my grandmother, who was a very successful, functioning alcoholic, she was the first one in her family line that had an encounter with God mm. and turned the tables on that whole scenario eating up all of her life. And so probably midlife that shifted for her when it got to my mom. It was probably early years. Part of the social could have really become something, but then she really had a real encounter with God. So by the time it got to me, Mm -hmm. it's a totally foreign world to me. And that just amazes me because just two generations back, it owned my whole family. Yeah, it just, yeah, it it is lightning running through the the bloodlines. Yeah. Yeah. But I mark that and I'm amazed at you just kind of go, look at all the life and the literally running a family line, you know, that that was just wreaking havoc. And then you enter enters a person mm-hmm. who just completely surrenders to God and says, okay, th- I've got to learn a new way here. Right. And I need you in the middle of this. Two generations later, it's just not even a part of my reality. And that's the power of someone like right. you who says, okay, this is not the road I'm going to go. Yes. How powerful that is, not just in your life, but in what comes after you. Well, it has been as painful as it has been to deal with my own addiction and alcoholism, even more painful to go through it with my child. Mm -hmm. I have to say, her brother and sister, it has changed them, and not always in a good way. You know, that it just has such a devastating impact on the family Mm -hmm. and the part of it that is so valuable is they understand the seriousness of it yeah they understand they are acutely aware of the cost Mm. you know I just don't think that families that have that much tragedy attached Mm -hmm. the way mine does can afford to be cavalier mm-hmm. about about it, yeah. you know? And yet, even that has led to so much life. You mm-hmm. know, I think everything good in my life, everything of any value, everything good in my, in my marriage, with my kids, with my friends, with my career, you name it, mm-hmm. certainly the reality of my faith. All of it sits on a foundation of sobriety, yeah. every bit of it. Yeah. And in my life, we, you know, and in this culture, in America, we just so define a winning end mm-hmm. as, you know, we monetize it. Mm. Or, you know, it has some kind of material attachment or some kind of fan base, mm-hmm. or some kind of something where it looks right. grand. Right. And that is not the deal. Yeah. It's, it is such a disservice that our society mm-hmm. leans on that, mm-hmm. you know, because 
at the end of the day, none of that is what contributes to the joy and the um, contentment I have on a day-to-day basis in my life. And, uh, you know, it certainly puts me in a, you know, when those things happen, when lovely things happen, when that acknowledgement comes, when that reward happens, it's great to enjoy it. Right. But, you know, to hang your hat on it. Right. It lasts about 30 seconds uh-huh. and then and then you're still left with you. Right. Then you got to deal with yourself. Yeah. So. Real life returns. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that really is the power of the constant river of your connection with God. Absolutely. That carries you through whether it's a highlight day or the worst of the worst day. Yeah. It's so powerful. That's so true. Would you mind reading a little bit from, yeah. from your book? I'm such a, a, a rebel. I'm going to read from the end of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and this chapter is called More Broken, More Light. Mm. I had a pastor for many years who forbade us to sing I Surrender All. He said, that's a crock. He said, no one surrenders all. And... Most people, if they are honest, aren't even qualified to sing I Surrender Some. I am solidly in that camp. I know all about selective surrender and cherry-picking my life before handing it over to God's care. I say, here, you can have this. I did not want it anyway. (laughs) God knows all about it, too. But here's the thing. A little bit of surrender... That's a lot of surrender. Mm -hmm. By the same token, a little bit of hope is a lot of hope. A little bit of faith is a lot of faith. All of these things have the same source. A heavenly father who is so entirely counterintuitive that he delights in investing his power in tiny things like mustard seeds Mm -hmm. and broken fools like me. I don't really foresee a day when I will let go without a fight. But it's helpful to remember that I am not, as Richard Rohr says, giving up. But I am giving to. There is an enormous difference. Wow. So the thing that I'm working on now, so I'm not really drawn to writing fiction at Mm -hmm. this point. That might change. But My mother, I'm from a very colorful Southern family, and she is one of the great Southern dames and fascinating. But she's also maddening and difficult. And so, you know, some of our best connections have really been on the telephone. (laughs) But I came up with this idea that I gave her a, a journal for her 75th birthday called 75 Things I Like About You. Oh, that's great. And they were just, it was very anecdotal about just 75 qualities in her that I either liked or actually intensely disliked, but it was fun to write about them anyway. Yeah. You know, and then now she's, as she approached her 85th birthday, and I knew a little more of her story, I thought, I would love to write a book about my mom and just write 85 essays for her 85th birthday. So now she's 86 
and I'm already running out of ideas, so there will <laughs> still be only 85 essays. But, but I'll read. I'll read a little bit oh, of the intro yeah. to this book, and I will also say that for now, I've, I'm not quite finished. I've got about nine essays left to go. Wow, amazingly. that's great. I know, um, amazingly. That's amazing. But if people are interested and would like to read, I blog an, one essay a week for free at my website, oh, which cool. is ashleycleveland.com. And people can even subscribe and get a link to it, sent oh, to them. Yeah. So you can read it. You know, I have a bunch of readers that come and read it every week, and then hopefully it will be out as a book as soon as I get it done. What a great idea. I love that. So much of it is, once again, like what we're talking about, you go into something and you think it's one thing, Mm -hmm. but for me it has been a way to connect with my mother at what is arguably at least near the end of her life in a way that it's been so meaningful. Wow. And, you know, we've laughed a lot. We've teared up a little. And I've learned a great deal about my family. So this introduction is called Short for Nothing. Bernie, short for nothing. Joan, considered dull and dropped. Parrot, beloved maiden name. Cleveland, ill-fated first marriage. Sheiks, at last love. Stood in front of a hall full of women. Earlier that morning, I had heard her in her little galley kitchen tuning up her public speaking skills, modulating, enunciating, delivering as if to Congress. She was ready, having just finished a story core class that involved writing short, or in her case, not short, biographical excerpts and reading them aloud. Bernie is my mother. And I look forward to her presentation because she is funny and interesting and occasionally shocking. But I was not prepared for the schooling I got in my mother's life. And midway through her 30-minute talk as she held the room in her manicured, age-spotted hand, I thought, this is a book. So, um... She sounds amazing, by the way. Well... You know, I got the idea for this from a friend of mine who had had to get therapy to work out her relationship with her mother. Mm. And the therapist started out with, go home and write five things down that you like about your mom. Wow. And she said, well, I can't. Mm. And the therapist said, why not? And she said, because I don't like anything about her. And she said, five things, bring it back next week. And the five things turned into... Five more, and then five more. And she was the first one to write this 75 Things I Like About You. It was her idea. Wow. And, you know... How healing. When she gave me that idea, I thought, you know, I have not always gotten what I wanted or needed from my mom. She has not always gotten what she wants or needs from me. Mm-hmm. You know, but, mm-hmm. but there is a way to connect. And for me, I find looking back... Through the generations is another way of looking forward. Mm, It's true. Because history does repeat, and also history informs who we become. Yes, that's so good. I feel like all of this has been such a way to understand, you know, at this point in my life, self-awareness is really high on my list of 
mm-hmm. priorities because I'm tired of inflicting myself on people, you know. And it has helped, even though the book is largely about my mother, it's about me too. Yeah. And my own children, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I have a, my youngest child is a poet, and she recently had her first poem published, which has the terrifying title, Tell My Mother I Tried. I thought, well, she has trouble with me, too. <laughs> oh, that's great. I know. That is so, so it great. just continues. Uh-huh. But anyway, yeah. if people would like to read the book or read essays, yeah. I welcome them to the site. And um, That's so great. So it's ashleycleveland.com? Yes. Okay, so you can go there and read them. Yeah, go to the blog section. Go to the blog. Okay, and then you can sign up to get them sent mm-hmm. weekly. What a great concept. So hopefully, I mean, now it's such mm-hmm. an intriguing concept that now I'm really pulling for this to become a book. It's the same as anything else. You know, you do something and think, is this going to matter? Is yeah. this going to matter? Is this going to matter? But, you know, one of the my great loves in life are old hymns that, yeah. and old black gospel songs mm-hmm. and you know, they're so vastly different, but they're both so meaningful, and they yes. both take me to a place of faith yeah. that is so visceral and real. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, the hymn writers, the majority of the hymn writers, and certainly the African-American slaves who really literally wrote these songs in the fields, mm-hmm. none of them knew these songs would matter. True. None of them, you know, in the case of the African-Americans, you know, they had no reason to believe their lives mattered. Right. And yet they did. Yeah. And these songs have been surviving for centuries. Right. Recorded by thousands of people. Uh-huh. So we can't worry about, are we going to matter? Will so this true. matter? We just use our gifts. It's so and true. And we do it again. Right. And then do it again. It's and so true. And see what happens. Yeah. I just read a quote this morning that reminds me of what you're speaking to, Ashley, and it said, so many times we miss the supernatural looking for the spectacular. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, and it so resonates and is woven all throughout your story and your life. You know, even now, I mean, you know, over the last week, I was going back and listening to your new release and then the ones from years past and... To hear you say, really, I never set out to be this or this. I just set out to be an artist to convey what I was experiencing, which happened to include a vibrant awareness of God and a life with God. And somehow in there, you kind of just became an accidental preacher of the gospel (laughs) i mean there's people that set out to be that and that's their their life mandate but when i listen to you you know and i listen to what has come out of you and i can appreciate the love for the hymns and black gospel i mean the words are so rich but i think they run deep too because they're sort of a prophetic element in hymns and in those black gospel spirituals. Absolutely. And and I would say there's also always been a prophetic edge through what you have written. And even when you stand to express or perform, play, or sing, you know, what you've written, there is something of this prophetic edge that 
runs through that. And it might be speaking one thing to one person on this side of the room. And like you said, people get so personal at the song. There's something about that prophetic edge that somebody clear on the other side of the room, it's doing something totally different. And both might be as far apart from why you wrote it, but somehow God takes it, you know, and weaves something beautiful with it. And I just, I really thank you for finding time to express and write because we've all benefited from it. Well, you're so, you're so nice to say that. Yeah. I, I mean, that means a lot to me. And I, but I also think that you highlight something that is so true. You know, if the Lord inhabits, you know, it's that whole thing. We are called to use our gifts because God takes them. And whatever it is we're doing, you know, this paltry expression, really, a lot of the times. Yeah. But he inhabits it. Yeah, he does. And then it becomes something that pleases him. Yeah. And that means something to somebody else. So true. And, and we're not needed for this. Mm-hmm. We just get to be part of it. That's and so that, to me, I mean, you want to talk about what makes life important yeah. and worth living? What, yeah. what makes your life matter? You know, you want to talk about mattering? Yeah. That's the thing. It's so you true. You know, and I wouldn't have missed that for the world. Yeah. So. Yeah, those moments are are just priceless. They are. Yeah, they really are. This has been just so great. Thank you again oh, for making the time to thank come. Thank you for inviting me. It's just been such a joy. And to all of our listeners, again, you can connect with Ashley at ashleycleveland.com. Go to her website. Of course, you can find her music everywhere. and <laughs> Or at Amazon. <laughs> or at Amazon. It's true. You can find it on Amazon and in all those places, but jump in there. I know you enjoy it. And we want to give our great thanks again to Cheekwood Botanical Gardens yes. and the mansion for letting us host this great conversation on this beautiful property. It's just a gorgeous spring day. Yes, yeah, so if you come to Nashville, yeah. put this on your list of things to come and it will touch your soul. It's so true. It's so great. And if you pray really hard, maybe you'll be in town on a night when Ashley's playing the Bluebird <laughs> Cafe because it's such a great place. It is. To it's go. very iconic. Yeah. Just, just wonderful. Well, thank you again. Thanks everybody for listening. Reach out to us if there's anything we can do for you. JenTringale.com. And we'll see you back here next time. Have a great week, everybody. Bye bye.